Our scripture passage is from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable, the land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this, I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, you are our all in all, and we are grateful. Forgive us when we put our trust and our faith in anything other than you. We pray now that you would help us to see ourselves in the actions of the rich man in the parable, that we may see and then in seeing be on guard against the way greed in all its forms works to keep us from being the people you call us to be. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Greed in all of its forms. Jesus says there's many kinds of greed and greed sneaks up on us in its many forms. It comes on us unawares, it seeps into us, it gets a hold of us. Before we know it, we're controlled by it. And so Jesus says in verse 14, be on guard, take care, be intentional about the power of greed in your life, guard against it. Greed is about, in this passage, the focus is on greed for material possessions, financial greed, but greed is broader than that, it's bigger than that. We can be greedy for power or for influence. We can be greedy for uh, control of our lives, for everything to work out the way that we want it to work out. There are many forms of greed. Jesus senses this in the man who asks him a question, teacher, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. It's conceivable that there could be a case of injustice going on here where the man is being treated unfairly. It's logical then for Jesus to intervene, but Jesus is aware that something else is going on. He senses greed in the heart of the questioner and he says, I I won't, I won't intervene. He gives the warning against greed, but then the main thing he does in the passage is he tells this parable. A rich man's land is abundant in its production one season. So abundant that he doesn't know what to do with all of the surplus. He thinks to himself, I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger ones, I'll store everything up, and then I'll be able to relax and take it easy for years to come. And in the parable, God says to the man, you fool, all of these things you want to store up, What good will they be when you lose your life? Your life is called for tonight. Instead, be rich toward God instead of toward possessions. Jesus says at the the conclusion of the parable. Well, the rich man in the parable gives us many negative examples, things not to do. Let's look at three, three observations 
on how uh, we should not live. Uh, three observations that if we don't do these things, we have a better chance at living lives that are rich toward God. First, the rich man talks to himself instead of talking to God. He is filled with self-talk, conversation with self, instead of listening and speaking with God. Self-talk instead of prayer. This is what uh, he says in the parable. All this wonderful thing happens with the abundance of his crops. And in verse 17, uh, Jesus says, and he thought to himself. And he thought to himself. There's no sense in the thinking of thanks be to God from whom all blessings flow. There's no prayer of gratitude for the abundance. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have provided. No acknowledgement that what has come to him is a gift, not anything that he has earned, but something that comes from the hand of God. All we see, all we hear is, and he thought to himself. There's more of us in the rich man than we would like to admit. Certainly more of me in this man than I would like to admit. For how many times has God blessed you in some abundant way? How many times have we been blessed? And our first thought is not thanks be to God, and maybe it's not even our 20th thought. Maybe it's never a thought. We, we go through receiving the blessing and enjoying the blessing without offering gratitude to the one from whom all blessings flow. And how often when presented with a wonderful opportunity as the rich man is presented here, or how often when presented with a difficult challenge do we think to ourselves and not include God in the thinking? Opportunity for this person in the parable, no question of God. What should I do, Lord? How should I handle this blessing? How would you have me be a good steward of all that you have given me? Instead, what does he say? He thought to himself, what should I do? Not to the Lord, what should I do, but to himself, what should I do? And how often in the midst, again, of a challenge or of an opportunity is our first thought to think it through without reference to God. Now, this doesn't mean that we should not think things through. God has given us a mind and we're called to love God with our minds. We should think things through internally think things through with each other in conversation, whatever the challenge, whatever the issue, whatever the problem, thinking is biblical, but our thinking is done within the context of praying, under the umbrella of praying, cognizant of the fact that God through the Spirit is walking with us through our thinking and guiding us to arrive at the place where we need to be. The rich man in the parable does not consult with God on what to do with the abundance. How often do we think through our challenges and problems without reference to the Lord when we're called to say, Lord, what should we do? What should I do? The man in the parable talks to himself instead of talking to God. Secondly, in his thinking, he thinks only of himself. He never thinks of others. 
in his thinking, he thinks only of himself. He never thinks of others. Hear what he says to himself again. What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. We're only given about three sentences or so of the self-talk. And in those three sentences, 11 times, he uses the word I and me. His self-talk is completely focused on himself. There is no reference not only to God, there's no reference to others. It's all about him. And how often for us is our thinking focused on I and my and me? And even how often is our praying filled with the language of I and me and my. Now, it is good and it is right and it is biblical to use I language in prayer, to use my language in prayer. Why? We're called to cast our burdens upon the Lord because he cares for us. We're called to present all of our needs, all of our thoughts, all of our anxieties to God in prayer. Pray about everything. Through Jesus Christ, each of us are invited into a personal relationship with God. And the language of a personal relationship is personal language. I, my, Lord, I am excited. Lord, I am scared. Lord, protect my family. Lord, be a part of my story. Give me guidance. It is good and it is right and it is biblical to pray using the words I and me. And my. But it is not good and it is not biblical if all of our prayer language is I and my. Now, there are times, there are times, many of you, many of us have experienced it, when, when the situation is so grave, the, the, the challenge is so difficult, the, the, the pain is so deep that, that all we can pray for is, is for ourselves. There are times when that happens but not most of the time. And in the regular rhythm of prayer, we are called to pray using the words I and my and our and we and us. Jesus knew this. And so he teaches us to pray the prayer we prayed just a moment ago, our Father. Give us this day our daily bread. Give Iris this moment her daily bread. Now, it's not wrong to pray to my father. It's not wrong to pray father. Jesus does so in Luke's gospel where he gives a different version of the prayer. But but the prayer that the church has, has prayed throughout the centuries has been that prayer where we pray our Father. 
And when we're praying our Father, we are reminded that we're a part of a much bigger human family, all of us created by God. And we are a part of a much bigger church family, all who call on the name of Jesus, calling upon God as our Father. And when we pray our Father, when we pray it aware of what we're praying, it changes us. And God through the Spirit is able to work through us to further the work of the kingdom in the world. Here's a modest proposal for how we as a church can participate in being part of the solution for all of these horrible mass shootings that continue to occur. Two yesterday in El Paso and, and just a couple hours away in Dayton. And that is to pray the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, with all of God's children in mind. Which means in this instance, we pray and remember that God is the Father of all who have died. God is the Father of all who are suffering and wounded. God is the Father of all who grieve and mourn. God is the Father of the shooters. God is the father of all the law enforcement agents and emergency personnel who are working so hard and putting their lives on the line for others. And God is the father of all of those who think that whoever the shooters are and however they got their guns, God is father to all who think their access to guns should have been limited. And God is father to all who think that those access, that access should not have been limited. God is father to all of us wherever we stand on the political side of things in all of the political things that we must do to solve this problem. God is, name the issue, God is the father of Democrats and Republicans. God is father to those who feel one way about immigration law and those who feel another way. God is the father to those on this side of the border and those on the other side. He is father to all. And so as we pray our father for each other and for all, it then puts us in the mindset to remember that, that we are called to love one another, to be with one another, that we are all equally loved by God. It doesn't solve the problems. It doesn't solve our differences. It doesn't make it easy to work through those differences and to arrive at solutions. It doesn't make us all one big happy political family and we all sing Kumbaya together. It doesn't do that. But it does create a context within which we can have conversation and we can work together and we can trust God to lead us forward a context in which we pray not only our Father who art in heaven, but give us, all of us, this day our daily bread as we work toward this world being what God has created it to be. The way the rich man thinks, that's not possible. He's only thinking, I, me, mine. 
But if somehow we can begin to pray and think and live, not just I and me and mine, but our and us, maybe by the grace of God, the solution can start right here. And we can be a part of good things that God wants to do in our nation, in our world, and right here at home. So the, the first observation, this man talks to himself instead of praying. And when he talks to himself, he only talks about himself. He doesn't talk about anyone else. Third thing, third observation, uh, this man's vision is focused only on himself. His vision has no room for the kingdom of God. His vision is self-centered. He has no sense of what God may want to do in and through him through this abundance of crops as Rachel demonstrated and the children demonstrated moments ago. Uh, what does he say? I've stored all these things up. I'm set now for years. I can relax, eat, drink, be merry. That's his vision. That's his goal for life. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, it's not that relaxing is a bad thing. It's not. God built it into creation. Sabbath, every seventh day we rest. God built feasting into creation. God built feasting into the, the, the Christian year, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, all these birthdays baby dedications. It is good and it is right for us to have a feast, to have a party and to relax and to rest. Vacations, if we are able to do them, vacations are wonderful times to relax. Although sometimes we work harder on vacation than we won't go there. It's not that it's bad to relax and eat, drink, be merry. What's wrong is when we make that the goal of life. What's wrong is when we make that the ultimate thing that we're aiming for, that we're working toward. That's a part of the rhythm, yes, but a bigger part of the rhythm is taking all of the gifts and the, the skills and the finances and the time that God has given us based on our season in life and offering what we have to the work of God so that people can come to know Jesus Christ, so that God's kingdom can be furthered so that we participate in the work of the Lord in the world. In the midst of that, there's plenty of times to relax and have a feast, but that's not the only thing. And for this man, it was the only thing. Speaking of vacation, we were in Maine last month and as we're driving into Maine, you know how in every state you got those signs that say, welcome to our state. And, uh, and they'll have the governor's name and they'll have some kind of phrase that they've come up with to kind of define their state, something that you'll remember. So we're driving into Maine and on the welcome to Maine sign, there is this phrase, life as it should be. And I'm thinking Jesus has established the kingdom of God in Maine and we didn't know about it. Who knew? Who knew? And of course, they're talking about vacation land and national parks and water, and it's a you know more relaxed way of life. I guess they're trying to say, I under I understand, but but that's not life as it should be. Life as it should be 
is for Iris to be able to grow up in a place where there are not random mass shootings. Life as it should be is for people who are struggling to be able to receive the help that they need, blessed and encouraged by the church and by the community. Life as it should be is neighbors caring for one another as best we can. Life as it should be is Christians loving one another, giving witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ by the way we love and care for one another. Life as it should be is every person receiving the opportunity to experience the love of Jesus Christ because a follower of Christ has not only presented to them the story, the announcement of the reign of God and the love of Jesus, but also because whoever has announced it to them, whoever has shared it to them has lived it in front of them and for them, life as it should be, is caught up in that prayer phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the rich man in the parable invites us by his negative example, not to focus our lives on achieving some place where we can relax and eat and drink and be merry all the time. Instead, by his negative example, we are challenged, we are called to examine our gifts as a church, to examine who we are as individuals and to ask, Lord, not what do you want me to do with all of these surplus things? Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? How do you want me, how do you want us to participate in your work in the world? The man talks to himself instead of praying. The man refers only to himself and his thinking instead of to others. The man has a very weak vision of life that doesn't include God's purposes. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to show us a better way. Jesus died so that we wouldn't live lives that are only in reference to ourselves. Jesus died to give us a grander vision of what we with God can do for God's purposes. Jesus died to forgive our sins. Jesus died and was raised from the tomb so that we could live lives that are rich toward God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. And so we share a meal together to embody all that we see in the parable, the abundance of life, the abundance of gifts that we received, but also the grace of Jesus to forgive us when we hoard and do not share and do not follow God's vision for our lives. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he blessed it. Bless, O oh Lord, this bread that we are about to share. As we eat it, may we find ourselves nourished body and soul to be the people that you have called us to be. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
And after he had blessed, he passed it among them. Servers, if you would stand, we're going to bring the cup, the bread to you as the tray is passed. Please take all who follow Jesus are called to take a piece of bread, hold on to it. And then once everyone is served, we will share, we will eat the bread together. trade the sinner's end for your new covenant. Hallelujah. I live my life in remembrance. Your promise I won't forget. I'll walk salvation's road with fear and trembling. Your way born as my. Christ is formed in me. Hallelujah. I live my life in remembrance. Hallelujah. Your promise I